Hi there, thanks for joining us. This is the latest episode of Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host. It's so good to have your company. Today, we are going to look uh, pretty close to home at our own atmosphere because they've made a fascinating discovery. It looks like Earth cleans up its act, which is good, uh, but they've found a, a mechanism that uh, wasn't previously known, which is really quite fascinating. And we're going to look at Neptune because uh, the James Webb Space Telescope recently took some uh, happy snaps of Neptune, and it is quite astounding. Uh, on top of all that, we're going to answer questions we've never had asked before. You don't believe me. Uh, somebody wants to rewrite Big Bang Theory. Uh, there's also a question about the expansion of the universe and dark matter. Never done that before. That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me to get down and dirty with Uranus and uh, clean it all up with Earth's atmosphere is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. We've been doing this too long, Andrew, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, well, yes, it's great to be here. Um, it's good to have you here. It's good to have you here. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, we, we will um, probably just plough straight into it today because there's uh, plenty to talk about. And I'm really fascinated by this first story about uh, how Earth's atmosphere, atmosphere cleans itself because uh, we, we've been talking for decades now about how filthy our atmosphere is and how much dirtier it's getting and what that uh, means for global warming and climate change and the melting of the ice caps and dogs and cats living together. But this, dis this discovery could change the game. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. It certainly changes the game in terms of our understanding of what's happening in the Earth's atmosphere. And, you know... Um, What's that got to do with astronomy? Well, first of all, the Earth is a planet, and we we learn things about planets by looking at the way things happen on Earth. Mm. And the other thing, of course, is that astronomers, these ground-based astronomers, are always looking through the atmosphere. So it's quite important to us, uh, and that's why I thought this story was one that we uh, was w worthy of uh, a space nuts uh, feature. Yes, and um, it comes from research that has been published uh, in the United States in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, it's uh, re uh, the researchers are essentially chemists uh, at uh, University College, uh, sorry, University of California, Irvine. So. What's the story? Okay, it's about hydroxide, which is uh, a sort of two-atom two molecule related to water, but it isn't water. It's O and H stuck together. And of course, water's H2 and O stuck together. Uh, but this OH is a molecule that um, in some senses isn't unstable, but it binds with other molecules. That's its great thing. It's uh, very, very um, gregarious. It likes to be with other compounds. And that's why it has a role in cleaning up the atmosphere um, because um, a lot of hydrocarbons in particular uh, actually react with OH uh, and basically turn into stuff that's okay, like water. Yeah. Uh, and um, 
the, you know, one of, one of the authors of this paper says uh, you need OH to oxidize hydrocarbons, otherwise they will build up in the atmosphere indefinitely, and that would not be a good thing. Definitely so, not. That'd be runaway greenhouse, wouldn't it? Uh, it, it, it yes, in in the end, it would lead to you know an increase in greenhouse gases. Mm. Uh, so another uh, uh, actually uh, an, another of the scientists and uh, forgive me, I didn't mention that uh, Christian Georges is from the University of Lyon en Francais, pardon, en France, uh, and um, and uh, is uh, the other. I think he's the lead author of the study. Uh, Christian goes on to say, OH. Uh, that's this strange little uh, little uh, molecule. OH is a key player in the story of atmospheric chemistry. It initiates the reactions that break down airborne pollutants and helps to move to remove noxious chemicals such as sulfur dioxide and nitric oxide, which are poisonous gases yeah. from the atmosphere. Uh, thus, having a full understanding of its sources and sinks is a key to understanding and mitigating air pollution. So that's the link with uh, with why why we're able to clean up the planet's atmosphere. Um, and uh, it's it, so the way we've always thought OH was formed in the atmosphere was by this by sunlight mm. by ultraviolet radiation from the sun triggering a reaction that forms OH. Um, and so it's always been thought that you've got to have sunlight to make this this stuff, um, but it turns out <clears throat> that um, there is another way, which may actually be the you know in in many ways the principal way it might actually be sunlight as the uh, the main mechanism for creating <clears throat> excuse me for creating OH excuse me one moment <clears throat> see um, frog in the throat syndrome yeah here we are. Sorry, the OH molecule in the throat <laughs> syndrome. There probably is one somewhere. <laughs> uh, it builds on. So it builds on uh, earlier work. Um, uh, another group, um, in fact, at Stanford University in the USA, uh, they discovered that uh, if you've got water droplets just sort of hanging around in in a lab, uh, you can get hydrogen peroxide, which is another molecule forming on these water droplets. It's formed spontaneously. Mm. And that was the work that triggered the research that we're reporting now uh, because it's uh, not hydrogen peroxide that these uh, uh, scientists are looking at. It's OH, the hydroxide. Uh, so um, what they did was they got a lot of different containers, uh, some which contain droplets of water with air and some that contain water without any air. <laughs> ah. So it's it's vaporized water effectively. And they looked at the production of the hydroxide molecule. Uh, and what they saw was that in, in the ones in darkness, um, in fact, they're all in darkness, actually. They're not, they're not, they're not illuminated. These are all in darkness, some with water and some without. Uh, the ones with with uh, with the air and water surfaces actually generate the, the hydroxide at the same rate or even faster than sunlight does. Mm. Um, and so uh, one of the authors says enough of the hydroxide will be created to compete with other known hydroxide sources. And at night, when this is a comment by one of the authors, at night when there is no photochemistry, 
OH is still produced and is produced at a higher rate than would otherwise happen. Is that right? So, yeah. So it's it's just finding a completely new mechanism for uh, for where this this stuff comes from. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and a surprising one. And I think the thinking is um, that the mechanism involves electrostatic forces. Um, that it's so, uh, kind of static electricity that um, that that actually uh, that that generates it because apparently there is a strong electric field uh, at the surface of water droplets in air. Mm. Uh, now that is something that I think has probably been known, but not recognised as being strong enough to 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 sort of mimic in a way the ultraviolet light that comes down from the sun and kick these hydroxide molecules into existence. I, I'm fascinated because I, I, on one hand, I'm thinking, okay, they've discovered this, but obviously it's been a process that's existed for a very, very long time, and yet we're still struggling with um, you know, melting ice caps and sea level rises, global warming, climate change. So discovering this hasn't really changed anything. But then, on the other hand, I wonder if the discovery enables us to come up with perhaps an artificial process going forward that might help us clean up our act. Yeah, I, that, that, I think that's sort of the thinking behind this. You know, if you can understand where this stuff comes from, uh, and you can perhaps generate more than nature does, uh, then you know, without poisoning the rest of us in the process. Well, that's the other but thing, isn't can, it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can clean up the atmosphere. So I, it, it is. It's a. I think it's quite a significant uh, finding. Um, uh, there's some. This this there's, there's, uh, there's a, a hint that um, it this work will actually lead uh, other scientists to to try and recreate this result. Um, so uh, there's, a, there's a comment by one of the authors, the next step is to perform carefully designed experiments in the real atmosphere mm. in different parts of the world, because at the moment this is all happening in the lab. Uh, but um, yeah, the atmospheric research community is definitely being shaken up. And one of, the, one of the researchers comments, a lot of people will read this, but will not initially believe it. Yeah. We'll either try to reduce it, reproduce it or try to do experiments to prove it wrong. There will be many lab experiments following up on this for sure. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, a watch this space story, but uh, maybe the, um, the the key thing is going to be to do, as, as they said, atmosphere, real atmosphere experiments on this OH production. Well, that's science, isn't it? I've made a discovery. No, you haven't. Well, yeah. yes, I have. Check again. <laughs> well, I did check again, yeah. and um, you're not quite right, but that's generally how it goes. How much OH is too much for us? Well, that's a good point. Um, I guess there is an amount that's too much for us. I'm not sure of the physiology of that, but yes, yes, there's, uh, there's, that the, you know, all these things come with caveats. You don't want to uh, suddenly build OH production factories that uh, give us give the atmosphere a bad smell, for example. Oh yeah. <laughs> Although you'd get used to it. Uh, you might get used to it eventually. Your comment, your comment about. Um, you know the experiments um, being announced and then proving people wrong reminds me, and it goes back to the nineteen eighties of two researchers called Fleischmann and Pons. I don't know whether that, those names mean anything to you, mm. but they um, wrote papers. They thought they had uh, uh, demonstrated cold fusion, the idea that you can fuse atoms together at room temperatures rather than needing something like the ITER 
you know, machine that's being built in southern France to, to, to fuse atoms to make essentially free electricity, uh, the, the nuclear fusion process. Yeah. Um, but that, uh, so that caused a lot of excitement at the time. I remember it very well, but um, nobody could reproduce their results. So it, it was, you know, it's been put back in the cupboard as something that maybe a some just some sort of unexpected glitch in the experiment, but nobody can reproduce their results. So cold fusion got knocked on the head with that. Yeah, I, I read about that um, fusion uh, reactor in in France. Yeah. Eater. Uh, yes. At the moment, it's actually requiring more fuel to produce yeah. the electricity mm -hmm. than it's actually producing. So um, they haven't achieved uh, equilibrium there yet. But that's the goal, that isn't it? It is, yeah, and I don't think the main machine's finished yet. Mm. I think they're still building it. There's, um, I've read reports recently of all sorts of strange, large pieces of scientific stuff wending, wending its way through the back roads of Provence in France because that's where it is uh, at night, so that you don't block up the roads yeah. for other traffic. Yeah. Uh, still on the atmosphere, we we have talked about in the past, and I know it's something that's it's been toyed with to try and clean up the atmosphere. The uh, creation of artificial carbon scrubbers and pl placing them around the world to try and clean things up. I don't know if that's ever gotten off the experiment page, but um, that that could be an option if uh, the OH concept is going to cause us too much trouble. But uh, it's too early to say, isn't it? With OH, it's it's a it's a lab, yeah, lab experiment. Yeah. That's right, and it, it may not necessarily be. You know the the pollutants that they're talking about are the are the nasties, not not the not particularly the greenhouse, yeah. um, the greenhouse gases. So carbon scrubbing might be might be an option. Yeah. Well, you know carbon sequestering that's been talked about as well, mm. putting the carbon back in the earth under high pressure. Uh, there's a lot of ideas. Well, one of the but one of the bottom line they is do out here is they pay farmers to grow trees, which yeah. which holds yeah. the carbon. Which is okay until you have a massive fire and then it's all gone again. It goes back again. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, yeah, we, we've got um, massive farms even in this district, uh, which are designed primarily just to grow timber to hold okay. to hold carbon, um, yeah. and they get paid for it, and they get paid rather well, as it turns out. But yeah, but this is a yeah a really interesting discovery about how Earth cleans itself up and uh, tries to uh, maintain equilibrium in the atmosphere. There's this this just one little wrinkle in that process, and it's called humans. Uh, That's right. Which are kind of <laughs> sort of That's the one. pendulum swung too far, uh, and yet there are still those that that debunking it, saying it's not real. No, no such thing. I know. Mm. I know. Anyway, we'll watch with interest. Hopefully that will develop into something going forward and you can read all about it at the scitechdaily.com website or uh, get the, uh, go direct to the source of the paper, which will be referenced in that story. This it is, yeah. yeah. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a short break from the show to talk about our sponsor, NordVPN. Uh, now, Nord is the best in the business when it comes to virtual private networks. And I've used it a, a few times now in my overseas travels. I'm using it right at this minute uh, as a part of uh, recording Space Nuts. And um, it shows you how you're connected. It's a high-speed system. Uh, I could do a speed test right now on my... In fact, I think I will. How about that? Um, speed test. 
and it is uh, a, you know a reasonably fast plan. It's not the fastest, but it's uh, it, you know it's it's good enough for our purposes. But often, when you connect to a VPN, you get downgraded a bit in terms of speed because you're going through all those extra servers. So I'll hit go, and away it fires. Now it's uh, connecting to a server from uh, Dubbo to Sydney. Uh, and I'm getting speeds uh, around 45 megabits per second download, which uh, isn't bad at all, considering uh, the traffic on the network. You know, I just sort of tipped up towards 26. So, yeah, four, no, 46, I should say. 46 uh, download and about 18 upload on a 50-20 plan. So that's pretty darn good with a VPN connected. And uh, yeah, you don't lose much. And sometimes it's even faster. I've done this test before and found that I'm getting 52, 53 megabits per second download on a 50, 20 plan, which is rather extraordinary. Um, now, uh, if I also uh, sort of have a look at what's on offer, I click on this uh, next bit. I've got my threat protection all connected, which uh, provi uh, provides me protection through the web. Uh, file, uh, I get file protection all those other bits and bobs that are clicked in. And I've got uh, MeshNet, which means I can share files, I can route traffic, I can link other devices through my system. They're all protected. And uh, there's a dark web monitor, which will advise me if anything, anything at all that isn't uh, kosher or savvy or, or right uh, will pop up as a, as a threat so I can deal with it. Now, I, I'd strongly suggest you go through Nord vpn.com slash space nuts and look at what's on offer uh, that's the special url nordvpn.com slash space nuts uh, there's a 30-day money back guarantee as always and depending on what you sign up for it gets cheaper for the longer you sign up you can go with a standard monthly plan or you can sign up uh, on a year's plan or a two-year plan uh, Whichever one you choose, you get an extra four months at the moment as a Space Nuts listener. So check it out today, nordvpn.com slash Space Nuts. Click on Get the Deal and uh, pick the plan that works for you. I bought the whole damn lot. It's not an expensive thing to do, and you can look at it like insurance. It just covers you just in case. Maybe you'll never need it, but you don't want to find out that you did, and it's too late nordvpn.com slash space nuts now back to the show Three, two, one. space nuts now we're uh, going to stick to our solar system we're just going to go from the third rock from the sun to the one that's furthest from the sun technically speaking uh, and um some new images of no we're not we're not going to what talk about to neptune we're going to uranus which isn't the furthest from the sun oh hang on which one are we looking at the planet Uranus. Ah, so I wrote Neptune down. I'm a buffhead. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all right. We're going to Uranus. <laughs> it sounds disgraceful. Never mind. Never mind. Yes, that's okay. <laughs> um, now, um, some new images from the James Webb Space Telescope of Uranus have been published, and they are stunning. And they're uh, revealing some uh, quite amazing things about uh, the planet that we've only visited, what, once in our history? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Flyby of uh, Voyager 1, I think it was. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a place we, um, and I think we had a question a few weeks ago asking, why haven't we been back? When are we going back? Yeah. And there's, there's certainly a lot of um, 
um, enthusiasm within the space community and the planetary science community for going back to Uranus, possibly Neptune as well. Uh, these are missions that are, I think, still probably decades away. Uh, even and, and of course, they'll take decades to get there as well, uh, a long time, um, because we don't have the the luxury that uh, we had in the seventies of neat planetary alignments that uh, that let you that let you um, catapult spacecraft using the gravity assist method. Mm. So, um, but what's lovely about this story, and uh, I, you, I, probably many of our listeners will have seen uh, images that were made with the Hubble Space Telescope of the planet Uranus um, decades ago, yeah. showing uh, the planet with its ring looking like a halo around it because, uh, of course, the planet is sits... Uh, more or less edgeways on in, in its orbit. Yeah. Its, its pole is pointed slightly below uh, the plane of its orbit. So we tend to see the rings sort of full on whenever you see them. Quite quite mystifying when you see it at first because it look a bit like Saturn, a depleted Saturn, but tipped on its side. Mm. So uh, as you'd expect, once it became uh, possible for the James Webb telescope to image Uranus because the James Webb, as we've discussed before, can only point in certain directions. It can cover the whole sky in a year, but it can't sort of cover the whole sky at any one time. So I think what's happened is Uranus has now come into view, and we've got some, as you said, some really stunning observations uh, of of the planet. Um, and what really blew me away, Andrew, is that uh, these observations took... Uh, 12 minutes of James Webb telescope time. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, which is fantastic. Of course, it's a bright object. And it's, um, and it's reasonably close. It's nearby compared with some of the things that uh, the Webb looks at. Mm. Uh, but yeah, fabulous uh, stuff. Short short exposures. They're uh, near-infrared images. I think most of them were obtained with the uh, NearCam, uh, which is the near-infrared imager that... Um, the web carries, uh, and, and it, these images, of course, show not just the planet and its rings, but also um, many of its moons. Is it twenty-seven moons that Uranus has? I, I lose count with these things because uh, it used to be when I, I think they could about the two. They could too when I started astronomy. They might be confused. They mightn't be um, moons. They could be polyps. <laughs> okay. Well, you could. Uh, the, the one good thing about that, Andrew, is that you could have said something worse. <laughs> yes, it is. It is twenty-seven known moons, um, and uh, many of them have been captured. You might remember that the moons of Uranus are named after all Shakespearean characters, mm. uh, mostly from *Midsummer Night's Dream*. So, notwithstanding all that, uh, what we have is images that show. First of all, I think everybody is captivated by the rings in much finer detail than we've seen. Um, the Hubble images gave you an impression that there was one thin ring around uh, around Uranus yeah. with maybe some inner ones, but this shows beautifully the, the structure of ringlets uh, within the Uranus ring system, very like what we see uh, in the Saturnian ring system where we've got lots and lots of um, what, what are called ringlets that that together make up the, the, the main rings as we see them. Mm. This is, um, yeah, it's stunning. I, I urge, you know, all our listeners uh, to 
go and hunt these images out. They're very easy to find. I found them on the Science Alert web- website. Uh, but uh, the rings, uh, and of course, because these cameras on uh, on the Webb telescope have got pretty neat filters on them that let you sift through the light, um, there's probably more coming out of those uh, of those images than we than just looking at them and saying, aren't they pretty? Uh, you know, the structure of the rings, of course, is shown clearly in the images, but there'll be more details that we will find out from uh, perhaps the more detailed uh, information that's been secured in those 12 minutes. Um, the other thing that's uh, notable is um, Uranus shows up clouds occasionally in its atmosphere. Yes. Uh, and indeed, there are clouds visible. But there is also um, the the North Polar Cap, mm. which is huge. It's a, it's a an area of the planet, you know, from the visible disk, it covers almost half the visible disk that you can see. Yeah. Uh, and that polar cap, of course, it's not uh, ice like it is on Mars and the Earth, uh, because uh, Uranus is a gas giant. So it's something in the gassy atmosphere of uh, of of Uranus. Uh, and its source is unknown, uh, but what has been spotted from this uh, that hasn't been discovered before is that in the middle of that polar cap, it's actually brighter. Mm. Uh, that's something that hasn't been seen before. So the origin of of this uh, of this polar cap is something that's going to be um, observed probably more with uh, with the web, if if not uh, more details coming from these present observations. Uh, the polar the polar cap brightens up actually as as the uh, as it faces the sun. In other words, it goes into summer because uh, Uranus has seasons, but they're very peculiar ones because it's tilted so far on its yeah, side. I'm trying to understand why the polar cap is you know, hasn't migrated to the top of the planet because that's generally the colder part. Yeah, uh, but uh, that's absolutely right. But there may be you know if you think about um, uh, the uh, rotation of Uranus, uh, a polar cap on the top of the planet will be going around, what is it, it's once every, it's a matter of a few hours, I think, the rotation of Uranus. It wouldn't stay. Put. Ah, yeah, uh, that makes sense. Just keep on going around. Mm. Uh, and, and it's possible as well that the dynamics of the atmosphere, the movement of gas within the atmosphere is what actually, uh, when, you, when you relate that to the rotation of the planet, that's what causes the polar cap. So it's, uh, it's, it's not, not it's not really climatic as such as it is rotational. Yeah, yeah, pro- pro- that's right. Probably both. both though. Yeah. But remember, um, you know, it may be uh, we think of a polar cap as being something cold. Yeah. But this one only appears when it's in full sunlight, so it's something different from that. Wow. Uh, so my my guess will be hazes in the upper atmosphere yeah. because you see that sort of thing in the atmospheres of of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, but um, as I said, it's not really fully understood. The chemistry of it's not uh, not understood properly. So uh, it's, it, it is, yes, it is really a st- stunning image, stunning, r- really stunning science that's coming from it. Um, the, the clouds themselves speak of storms actually taking place in the atmosphere uh, of uh, Uranus. And there are, there are, um, the, the scientists who made these images are just thrilled at the 
the extent, particularly of the rings, how many of the rings it shows. Yes. Uh, apparently, it's 11 of the 13 known rings. Of course, the rings were imaged uh, more clearly. Um, and I got it wrong. I said Voyager 1, but it's actually Voyager 2 that, that uh, flew by Uranus in 1986. And that, that discovered... Um, uh, discovered more more rings, I think, with 13. You know, Fred, you wouldn't have made that mistake had you read this book. <laughs> Which book am I looking at? Oh, yes, that's the one. Why is Uranus <laughs> Upside Down by Fred Watson? Uh, look, well, you're doing it for me. I don't need to mention my own books now. Thank <laughs> you. That's the one. Yeah. I, I do. Um, I, you called it a gas giant um, in the article that um, refers to it as an ice giant, and I've heard yeah. that many times. Um, why do That's why do we sometimes call uh, Uranus and Neptune ice giants? Ice giants, because there's ice in the atmosphere. That's right. Is that all. Uh, so, so yeah, it's yes, that's right. It's um, they're, they're, they're icier than uh, the. Jupiter and Saturn, they are gas giants, but they've got a high proportion of ice uh, in the atmosphere. Okay. Uh, and it, that might, again, that might might be something that relates to that polar brightening as well that we were talking about. Mm. So these images, stunning and pretty as they are, will be used to do quite a bit of science and to try and learn as much about this uh, planet as we can. It is a really odd place. I mean, you've got to admit, it's strange, isn't it? <laughs> and and we do need to learn more about it because um, something happened in its deep dark past that caused it to, yeah. to flip, to fall over. Yeah, that's right. And that's well, that's, that's, that's one of the the great. We don't know exactly what happened, do we? No, the thinking is something the size of the Earth, perhaps, clouded it, mm. and it's in the formation of the solar planet system. planet nine, knocked it over. Maybe planet nine. Yeah, and uh, actually, that's so. Uh, Good suggestion because it may be that whatever hit it uh, in that collision was given sufficient impetus to actually escape the solar system. So it might be a planet that we don't have any. Yeah, could uh, be, or or indeed the the mysterious um, planet nine, which we still don't know whether it exists or not. That's it. Will be in such a peculiar orbit, we think, mm. that maybe that was the result of the collision too. Planetary dynamicists uh, can can do amazing things by you know tracking back the history of the solar system and looking for. Um, evidence of that kind of thing, but I don't think there's any compelling evidence yeah. yet. I just like the colour of Uranus. It is, yeah, it's lovely, isn't beautiful it? Beautiful turquoise colour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely go and have a look at those image, uh, images. I might uh, get Hugh to make that our cover image on this episode because uh, it's absolutely stunning. Well, it, it certainly beats a photo of OH. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Yeah. You're right. <laughs> but if you do want to uh, uh, find out more about this, uh, uh, these amazing photos, you'll find them all over the web, but the sciencealert.com website is a pretty good destination you will find. Michelle Starr is the author. With a name like that, you couldn't really you can't go wrong. Make a mistake. She's could busy. She writes a lot of stuff. Yeah, she's good. Yeah. Yeah. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Hi there, Steve here again. Today's episode of Space Nuts is brought to you by CuriosityStream. It's the best place to find and watch documentaries about science, history, technology, nature, travel, and so much more. With exclusive award-winning films and shows that you can't watch anywhere else, CuriosityStream offers the deepest collection of the best documentaries from around the world, deeper than any other streaming service out there. And the best part, they add new shows every week, so there's always something new to watch. Do you want to know more? 
Curiosity Stream is the perfect entertainment brand for people with inquiring minds who want to find out more about the universe we live in. With content spanning science, nature, history, technology, tech, military history, music and so much more. There's really something for everyone on this service and it's available worldwide so no matter where you are you can enjoy all the amazing documentaries and non-fiction series Curiosity Stream has to offer. So head over to our special URL, curiositystream.com forward slash Space Nuts to get unlimited access to the world's top documentaries. And for our Space Nuts listeners, use the promo code SPACENUTS to save a massive 25% off your subscription. What an amazing bargain for access to the brilliant Curiosity Stream collections. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to watch the best documentaries and non-fiction series from around the world. Click the link in the show notes or go to curiositystream.com forward slash space nuts and save 25% right now and you can start exploring more of our universe with Curiosity Stream. And now it's back to your hosts, Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. Yes, indeed. Uh, now, Fred, we've got some questions to deal with. Um, most of these are Australian which is interesting. We uh, usually get people from all over the world, but uh, they're all text questions as well. This uh, first one comes from Mario, who is in Melbourne. Um, do we need a Big Bang rewrite based on the fact that uh, the James Webb Space Telescope has shown multiple early universe galaxies that are as large as the Milky Way and have red stars in them? A totally unexpected finding and contradictory to Hubble observations and current universe development theories. What does this finding imply? Or is this finding somehow inaccurate? Keep up the great show. I've been listening since the start. By the way, we need more of Fred's dad jokes. Thanks. No, we don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Minor granddad jokes. Um. <laughs> Look, uh, Mario's right. Uh, the web has certainly uncovered some things that stretch the the theories that we have developed for how galaxies evolve and how they uh, how they appear. Um, the 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 red objects, I think, are red galaxies. The red stars are probably beyond the reach even of of web, but uh, certainly galaxies that are what you might say, perhaps you could say more evolved than we would expect for such an early phase in the universe. Uh, and this is good. I, 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 nobody's at the moment uh, talking about rewriting the Big Bang because it has so much utterly compelling evidence in support of it. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the fact that uh, you can see it, for a start, in the cosmic microwave background radiation, that is exactly what was predicted, that we would be able to see the Big Bang if it happened, because we can look back so far in time that we can see it. Mm -hmm. And yes, we not only have we seen it, but we've measured it, and measured the fluctuations in it, the temperature fluctuations that tell you uh, a lot about the early history. So um, in that regard, uh, that plus the expansion of the universe, plus the uh, relative abundance of hydrogen, helium, things like lithium in the early universe, which we can observe, uh, they are exactly what you will get from the Big Bang, uh, from the, you know, looking at the physical models for the Big Bang. 
I think what might be at fault here is our understanding of how rapidly galaxies evolve, how quickly the process takes place of clouds of hydrogen in a cold, dark universe collapsing to, to form stars and then galaxies. And of course, um, uh, many of the uh, big telescope projects <coughs> currently underway, most notably the Square Kilometre Array, uh, are aimed at exactly that issue. What did the first stars and galaxies look like? What did the universe look like before the first stars and galaxies switched on? Mm. Uh, and the, in fact, the Square Kilometre Array, one of its tasks will be to map the cold hydrogen throughout the universe in the aftermath of the Big Bang. Uh, and that would certainly add insights to this exact uh, issue, because if you could see the hydrogen collapsing into, you know, proto galaxies uh, early enough, then you you do solve the problems that the the James Webb has uncovered. Didn't we recently talk about a, a discovery or an observation uh, dating back uh, to about three billion years after the Big Bang that showed massive galaxies, and they were trying to figure out why? Was that what? Yeah. Was that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's that's right. So um, galaxies more massive than you might expect mm. at that early period. Yeah, okay. Um, so no rewriting of the Big Bang, Mario. Uh, too much evidence to suggest that it is, it is what it is and it was what it was and still is. Um, but, yes, um, there are still some mysteries to unravel. Uh, that's, that's part of the problem, I suppose. Not really a problem, but um, an effect of... Um, getting bigger and better tools to do observations, you start finding things and go, well, okay, we've now got to figure out why that is. And that's, yes. what's, that's what's happening with James Webb. Well, it's what happens with all big telescope projects. What happens when you build something like that or, or you know, something like the Extremely Large Telescope or the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, you write a case to um, convince the funding agencies that you're going to discover great things. And so you you have specific questions that you want answered, specific things that you really want to look at, yeah. like the distribution of hydrogen in the early universe. But what actually happens is you build the thing. And it, yes, it does all that, but it uncovers something that was totally unexpected. Mm. And um, that's the sort of rewriting the textbook stuff um, because because that's when you find things that you you thought you had right, but were wrong. What's the most unexpected thing you've come across in your career? Oh, gosh. That's um, a good question. It is. Uh, the, yeah, the, um, there are probably lots of candidates for that. And some of the things we've talked about have blown me away because they've been completely unexpected. Um, I'm trying to grapple with them. I mean, I, I do remember uh, back, this is going back decades uh, when we realise that gravity can actually magnify distant objects mm. behind galaxies, gravitational lensing. That was something, I mean, Einstein predicted it decades before I got to know about it, but that was very unexpected to me. Um, things like, I'll tell you the other sorts of things as well, tsunami, evidence for tsunamis on Mars, oh, wow. uh, which we talked about some years ago. Here's debris that suggests that at one stage there were tsunamis on, on Mars. Yeah. Um, it's the the ones that I guess are most intriguing, and perhaps that's one of them. The, the tsunamis on Mars is something that you didn't expect, but when you learn about it, you think, "Why didn't Why didn't I think of that? That's so obvious mm. that something like that should happen." 
Yeah, well, yeah, you would think so because it used to have water on the surface. It had, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, in many ways, very similar to Earth on a you know, yes. completely different the early, early Mars. That's right, early Mars was. So it makes sense that that would happen, and it's pro- probably happened on other planets as well. Yeah, uh, if the conditions are right and the circumstances are right. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Mario. We're going to go to uh, Mario's neighbour, Kevin, who's also in Melbourne. I'm sure they live next door to each other. It's only a small place. Uh, Kevin writes, Hi, guys. Love the show and look forward to it every week. I have a question about the expansion rate of the universe. If the further away we look, the faster things are moving away from us. Doesn't that imply that the further back in time we look, the faster things are moving away from us? And if that's the case, doesn't that imply the expansion of the universe is slowing down? Thanks and keep up the good work, Kev. Um, uh, yeah, so, so let me just think. We are so we're always looking further back in time. Yes. Um, so uh, yes, the, the the trick is um, that uh, it, the, 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 basically that's what we always thought until the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, actually during the seventies. We thought that uh, the expansion is slowing down. It's not. So uh, you, you've got to separate the two things here. Um, we can look in the local universe and see galaxies receding from from ourselves, mm. all disappearing. And the further you look, further away the, you look, the faster that they're receding. And that's a geometrical thing. Um, it's uh, so when you, but when you start looking. Uh, at greater distances, and I'm now talking about perhaps five, six billion light years, um, then the effect that uh, Kevin mentions exactly comes into play. And so what you have to do is you've got to use a different yardstick other than the redshift expansion. And that's what um, Brian Schmidt and his colleagues uh, and his uh, colleagues over in the United States, two different teams working uh, together on the same problem. That is what they did to discover the accelerated expansion of the universe. They had a different yardstick from just the expansion, mm. uh, and it was supernovae. It was standard candles of uh, expl- type 1a supernovae, which explode, we think, always with the same brightness, mm. um, intrinsic brightness. And so you can use that. You look at how bright it appears, and you can you can do that. And it turned out that these things... Uh, if I get this the right way around, they were further away than expected. And that implies that the accel- the expansion of the universe has accelerated. Okay. So so it, uh, it, Kevin's thinking's correct, uh, but the measurements, you, you've got to have an, a, a, an, another external source rather than just the, just looking at the, sorry, another external uh, yardstick rather than just the expansion of the universe, which is what we normally use as the yardstick for measuring distances. Mm. Okay. There you go, Kevin. Just pop next door to Mario and you know, compare notes. You can solve everything for us. Uh, now, we'll move on to another Australian location not quite near Melbourne. It's Toowoomba, Queensland, and this one comes from Nick. He said, my question is regarding dark matter. I was watching a show about uh, tornadoes and was thinking, how does the twister stay together and not get flung apart from centrifugal force? Um, I then started thinking about the galaxy and how it does not get flung apart, which we presume is because of dark matter. Could the millions of stars inside the galaxy be causing a disruption in space-time inside the galaxy versus space-time outside the galaxy? 
uh, kind of like a low versus a high pressure system, which assists in the stars not being flung out of the galaxy. Kind regards, Nick. Geez, thought about this. This is lovely thinking. Yeah, I like that very much. Um, so I guess what holds a twister together is the, the intense low pressure yeah. at its center, um, because it must be there must be a balance. Of, not I'm really giving much thought to that, um, but yeah, there must be a balance between. Uh, the outward acceleration caused by the rotation and the inward pull caused by the low pressure. Mm. Um, so, so it, it, it even so. I think the the answer is that um, you, when you look at the galaxy, you take these things into account. Um, so, if, just remind me, Andrew, was was uh, Nick postulating? Gravitational distortion of space-time. Is that what? Uh, put the millions of stars inside the galaxy be causing a disruption in space-time versus um, uh, inside the galaxy versus space-time yeah. outside the galaxy. Yeah. So you'd, that that would be something that uh, the scientists who do this work would have in mind. Mm. But and even taking that into account, um, there's still not enough mass there to to hold it together. So uh, it's a nice an analog, actually, the idea of the low pressure in the middle of a tornado uh, being what what holds it uh, together. Uh, maybe distorted space-time in the middle of a galaxy, but there's still not enough in the stars that we can see. And, and throwing the black hole as well, you might as well. You get a few million solar masses or billion solar masses. There, it's still not enough to hold it together. So there's got to be something else, which is why dark matter was invoked. Okay. There you go, Nick. So, um, yes and no, but more no because of dark matter. Dark matter matters in the scheme of things. Um, it does. It matters a lot. It does. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a big matter. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, wraps up our questions, although I've got one more little uh, comment here from uh, Todd in Utah. You're going to love this, Fred. Okay. Because we, we got a comment asking for more dad jokes from you. I like this. Uh, Todd says, I'm a new listener. I just wanted to say that I love the show. Also, I learned for myself that space and time are relative. As the more time I spend with my relatives, the more space I need. <laughs> Very nice one. I like that. That's pretty good. It <laughs> is pretty good. Yeah, I think you should steal that one for your relatives. I could sure. do that, yeah, because it's Dad Joke Friday tomorrow. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you all. Uh, please keep those cards and letters coming in. Uh, you can uh, go to our website and send us your text or audio questions uh, through the AMA link or uh, the uh, tab on the right-hand side of the homepage if you've got a device with a microphone. It's pretty simple. Uh, mobile phones these days, cell phones for those who don't live in Australia, uh, or, uh, or text it. We'll accept them all. Just tell us who you are and where you're from. We love that. And while you're there, have a look around at the shop where you might be able to find this book that I just picked up <laughs> by, by somebody I know. Uh, did he autograph this one for me? No, he didn't. It must have come from your publicist. But anyway. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> must have. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there's plenty of other things to see and do on our website as well. So check it out, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Oh, don't forget our social media platforms. There's the official Space Nuts Facebook page. We've also got an Instagram page. We're on TikTok. We're on Twitter. 
Uh, and there's the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook where you can all get together and chat to each other and share your astronomical photos. And uh, yeah, it's it's a fun site. And uh, yeah, I've got uh, quite you know, a few thousand people that are uh, signed up to that page these days. Hmm. Fred, that brings us to the end. Thank you so much. Uh, pleasure, Andrew. And um, well, I look forward to the next one. Yes, there'll be a next one. <laughs> Don't know when. Maybe in a week. Don't know well. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Thanks, Fred. Talk to you soon. Sounds great. Take care. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts. Uh, and I'd say thanks to Hugh, but he took a sickie today. Um, I want your note. Don't forget your note, Hugh. Got to have a note or you don't get paid. Uh, that's it from me. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.